Your skill might be undisputed, yet you could fail. Unless you develop a very important skill besides the technical skill, you will probably be fired more often than hired. Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, wants us to discover together the characteristic that will keep us from stalling out in our careers. Dave? I'm really glad that you're here today because I want to talk to you about something that's going to, that's going to be helpful to you, not only in your church experience, but it's going to really help you in your, in your work. It's going to help you at school. It's going to help you with your neighbors. It's going to help you in your families. You see, as I look around this group, there's a lot of really gifted people. I mean, you have, a lot of you have gone and had extensive training in universities. Some of you have gone to trade schools. You've developed some really powerful uh, skills, for example, maybe in, in welding or something like that, or in elect, electrical work. Now, as I look around the group, there's just all kinds of gifts that are represented in this audience. But you know what? You can have intelligence, and you can have uh, discipline. You can have degrees. But if you can't get along with others, your inability to get along is going to stall you out in when it comes to success. The ability to get along with others is probably the most important thing that you can learn. In fact, when it comes to people that are chosen to be on school boards, for example, or city council groups, or when it comes to church boards, when it comes to being over the Sunday school, or when it comes to working in Awana, whatever you might think, think of as far as church work, when it comes to your job, when people start looking around, looking for committees, if you're not able to get along with others, no one wants to work with you. No one can, wants to be a part of a group that you're on because you are like someone that takes gravel and throws it into machine. Just imagine your car. It's running smoothly. And you open up the crankcase and you just throw a whole handful of gravel inside there. What happens? Man, it just chugs the works. I mean, the whole thing caves down. It's kind of like our lawnmower. Josh was mowing uh, earlier this week when school got out and he was mowing along and he suddenly hit a big chunk of wood that I had left out in the yard. And man, that old chunk of wood hit that blade and it goes clunk, 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 clunk. And then the whole thing goes dead. And I just thank the Lord for my neighbor, Tommy Hobson, who specializes in small engines. But engines don't well run well when you throw a chunk of wood into the blade. And someone that has the kind of an attitude that we're going to start out talking about today is someone that's like a chunk of wood in a smoothly running machine. It just makes everything go clunk. It makes everything become abrasive. Instead, there's another individual that has some other qualities. Two very powerful qualities that we're going to end with today. We're also going to talk about how you can get those qualities. And those qualities are like oil. They're like oil that makes things run smooth, it creates lubrication, and it helps things to really work together. I want you to listen because long before management theory, the Apostle Paul, you know, long before people were doing all kinds of management studies and everything else, learning about you know, what it takes for a leader to help people to get along, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 as he talked to us about what it took to create leaders in the local church. As the Apostle Paul talked to us about the kind of qualities that he believed were important when it came to choosing elders, when it came to choosing deaconesses, when it came to choosing those who would exercise leadership in the church, the Apostle Paul shared four negative kind of individuals that are very powerful in breaking down interpersonal relationships. And we want to begin with kind of a negative exposure of four guys or four girls 
That if you put them on a church board, if you put them on a school board, if you put them on a city council, if you put them in your business in a responsible position, they will be like throwing gravel in the machine. Now, if you open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, we can get the very first one of these characteristics. It's right alongside another characteristic that we already studied together, not given to drunkenness. I think it's important that it's related to this not given to drunkenness because all of us know, in fact, some of you in your unconverted days when you used to go out clubbing and you used to get drunk, some of you are what we call an angry drunk. When you start to get drunk, you get feisty and you become a striker. In other words, when you become under the influence of alcohol, you become someone who ordinarily you'd be gentle, you'd be considerate, but man, when you drink a little bit, that spirit comes over you and you get feisty and you become a striker. And that's why Paul adds that the spiritual leader in the first century church and in the church throughout the ages must not be someone who is given to drunkenness, but look at the next one. They must not be violent. In fact, the Greek here says that they must not be a striker, someone that is quick to punch. What we're talking about here is that when it comes to leadership positions, you don't want to put pugnacious bullies on leader, in leadership positions. In fact, this characteristic was so important that Paul mentioned it again over in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Turn over to Titus, the next book. The Apostle Paul wrote two books to young pastors, instructing them about leadership positions in the church. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, he mentions again, he says, the leader must not be overbearing, they must not be quick-tempered, they must not be given to drunkenness. He says, then his next statement is, they must not be violent. In other words, a spiritual leader must not be someone who's a pugnacious bully. Now, what is this person that's a pugnacious bully? It's a person, first of all, that's very insecure. One of the things I want all of us to realize is that if you're the kind of a person that has to strike out at people, in other words, when you're in it, the crunch of decision-making, you see, that's what leadership involves. Leadership involves being on committees, working with groups of people, being in business meetings, being at church meetings, being at school meetings, and on and on it can go. But the nature of being in meetings is that you're there to make decisions. You know what happens when you have to make decisions? There are two ways to look at things. Sometimes there are three, four, five, and six ways of looking at things. Now what happens to the pugnacious bully is they're insecure. You see, they're, they, they think about themselves. It, it has to be their way or else. And so what they do is they lash out. They strike. In other words, rather than being able to, to listen... Rather than being able to weigh both sides and be able to think about maybe three or four different sides, thinking about in terms of what are the ultimate objectives that need to be accomplished here, what are we really trying to get across, and being willing to be open to other people that might have other directions of, get, of getting there, the striker is someone that right in the midst of that discussion, usually before discussion even gets going, they strike. They're the kind of personal standpoint, well, if it's, it's got to be my way or else. You know, I'm the boss here, and man, it's, it's got to be this way. And you know what? You can move people that way. I want you to know something, that pugnacious bullies can really get a lot of things accomplished. I mean, they can get a lot of things to happen, you know, because Leo DeRocher is right. Nice guys sometimes really do finish last. And someone that's intimidating, people are scared of them. And you can move people by fear. I, I, I want you to know that. 
You can go through life and, man, you can, you can get feisty and you can say, man, it's going to be my way or else. And you know what? You can get people to do what you want them to do. But I got news for you. You'll do it with lots and lots and lots of people because you'll never be able to keep people. And second of all, what's going to happen is as you keep doing this, eventually you're going to be doing it all by yourself because all the world will start to get around. Man, man you know, this guy is so pugnacious and bullying. And it always has to be his way that you know what you're going to do? You're going to cut yourself off from all the gifted people around you. See, what the Bible is talking about is that, for example, in a church family, do you realize that every single one of you are absolutely necessary to this group? You see, the scripture teaches us that the moment that you believed in Christ, the moment that you believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live in your life. And as the Holy Spirit came into into your life, he infused every one of you took your personality and he especially equipped it, he especially gifted it to function in building up the kingdom of God. And the New Testament uses some, uses some beautiful words to describe what you become a part of when you believe in Christ. Like one of them is that you became a believer. You became a follower, someone that was willing to trust in Jesus, which means you can be secure. You don't have to be uptight. You can be secure. Second of all, it calls you part of the bride of Christ. So you don't have to be insecure because you're loved. You can lose everything else in life, but you can't lose the love of the Savior. So you can be secure in that. But another illustration it calls you, it calls you the body of Christ. And it pictures you like a living organism where every single part of your body fits together and works together in this incredible thing called the body of Christ. And what's needed, the reason you don't want a pugnacious bully being a leader in the local church family is they stall out the body. You see, they get uptight. You see, if you have a coach, for example, who's a pugnacious bully, you have a guy that goes up for a jump shot. The whole nature of making a jump shot in basketball is to be easy, is to be playing hard, but at the top of your jump is just a quick flick of the wrist and a, very, and a good follow-through, and it's very easy, it's very relaxed. And when a guy gets in a groove, you know, like some of the great stars in the NBA, when they get in a groove, they're incredibly relaxed. It's just smoothly flowing like oil. But a pugnacious coach is someone that makes everybody like this, and then nobody can play. A pugnacious player can cause the whole team to become like that. A pugnacious church member causes, causes the whole church to start to rack, you know, to rattle and roll. It's just like that chunk of wood that, that Joshua hit. The whole thing starts to make noise and then it won't run. And that's why we can't have pugnacious bullies in leadership positions. I've got news for you. There's more than one way to be a pugnacious bully. You see, some people strike, and that's what this word means. But you know another way to be a pugnacious bully? In fact, this is the way that I usually choose. What I do in an argument, if I want to win, is I just give in completely. Husbands love to do that with their wives. In other words, you got to, as a husband and wife relationship, you're going back and forth, and, you know, it's a, it's a real difficult thing. In fact, Mary and I yesterday had to make a really difficult decision. It was one of those decisions where neither way was it going to work out well. It was, it was just some hard facts that had to be dealt with, and it just wasn't going to work. Whichever way we did it, it wasn't going to be good. And rather than just really sitting down and discussing, you know, Mary stated her view and I stated mine, And then I just gave in to Mary's view. Now, the technique there, girls, and men, you can get in on this. The technique is if you just completely give in, see, then they feel guilty. 
And they'll think about it. And as they feel guilty, if you let them feel guilty long enough, they'll eventually come back and say, no, maybe we ought to do it your way. And then you can also say, if things go totally haywire, you say, well, I told you it wasn't going to be right. You should have done what I said to do in the very beginning. Now, all of that is being a pugnacious bully. It's just another form of manipulation. Bullies manipulate. They don't honestly discuss issues. They're not open. It's going to be their way or else. And if they don't get their own way, then they just pout. And some of you will do that for weeks. You pout when you don't get your own way and you're angry and you're silent. Silence is just another form of anger and you're just a pugnacious bully. And I plead with you, do not be like that. It will destroy your kids. Your kids will want to get away from you. They'll want to get out of your house. You can't let that pugnaciousness, that that constant irritability control your life. You don't need to be like that. You have a loving Savior in heaven. Things are under control. You can be in the depths of the Pacific Ocean. The whole world, like in crimson tide, can be up for grabs and there's going to be a nuclear holocaust. But if you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you can know that it's not ultimately out of control. You don't have to be a pugnacious bully. You don't have to strike. You don't have to get your own way. It doesn't mean that you're not strong. It doesn't mean that you don't stand for what you believe. But it means that you don't stand with that feistiness and that striking. And I'm going to punch you. Or I'm going to withdraw from you. Or I'm just going to cave in so I can manipulate you to get your own way. So watch out for that attitude of being a pugnacious bully. The next characteristic. Somebody else we don't want on uh, a leadership position or on a committee that's going to have to make some really hard decisions is the contentious debater. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 again. It says, not violent, but gentle. The next word there is not quarrelsome. We're going to get to gentle as we talk about some positive characteristics. But let me talk to you about the quarrelsome individual. This is the individual that loves to debate. This is an individual that loves to, to, you know, to win his argument, to win his fight. To win his fight. When I was in high school, I debated. I wasn't very good at it. In fact, my older brother, Don, won his junior year and his senior year in high school. I lost both my junior year and my senior year. So that shows you what my debating techniques were like. No, it was really my partner that lost us. No, that's not true either. Okay? But I did learn a little bit about debate. The nature of debating is that a guy gets up and presents an affirmative case. Now, as I'm listening to the affirmative case, I'm not sitting there with my roll sheet saying, boy, that was really a good point. I need to concede that one. That's really good, and that's part of the truth. And, you know, that, that second point is partly true, but we need to add to that and kind of move from that. When I'm going down my roll sheet, that's not the way I'm thinking. As a debater, I'm thinking, I can wipe them out there. I can wipe them out there. Man, this technique, if I throw this in here, I can junk that good point that he made and counteract it with a bad point, with a point that'll be just the opposite, the negative side of that. In other words, my point in debate is competitiveness. It's to win. It's to quarrel. It's to debate. And people that debate love to do that. Now, debate is great at getting to you look at two sides of two things. But debate is not good at resolving issues because the point in competitive debate is to win. For example, in the O.J. Simpson trial, the lawyers on the defense are not trying to learn the truth about what the, what the, what the prosecution is saying. And the prosecution is not trying to learn the truth of what the defense attorneys are saying. The whole point of a legal system is the defense attorneys go for broke. And the prosecution goes for broke. And you're supposed to have somebody else out there who's supposed to be wise and gentle and under control while these two pugnacious bullies fight each other. And that's because it's a secular world system. 
It's the point. It's the way the world is. But believers that love to quarrel, what you're doing is when you love to debate, have you ever had some friends that every subject you bring up, they have the opposite view? In fact, you can see in the next time you change the view, say what they say the last time, they change their, their viewpoint and it comes back. Some of you have families that are like that. You get together with your extended family on a holiday and it's just one great big debate for about a day straight. It's the way my dad's family used to be. We'd get together with them once a year and the whole night was a debate. I mean, just incredible debates. Nobody cared about the truth. Nobody cared about what was right. Nobody cared about what was real. The point was to win. Now, that attitude is not going to cut it. Paul said that a spiritual leader, a spiritual leader cannot be a contentious, quarrelsome debater. And that kind of a person, that kind of a person in a, in a board meeting can just destroy it and destroy the unity. And they, and they say things that, that crush very delicate egos and it squelches giftedness. So don't be a contentious debater. Thirdly, the Apostle Paul talks to us about someone else. We must not be a compugnacious bully, not a contentious debater. But 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, talks to us about somebody else. And also in verse 11, it talks about this. Look at verse 8. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 says this. Likewise, the deacons are to be men worthy of respect. And then it uses a word for sincere. They must be sincere. The Greek word that's used here means that they are not two-tongued. Now listen to me, because you're all probably saying, Man, Dave, I understand shouldn't be a contentious bully. And some of you are nice, sweet, gentle people, so you're not contentious bullies. Some of you say, well, Dave, I don't like to debate. In fact, I, I just I get frustrated with all that tension and everything. I don't like to do that. And so that's not really your problem. But listen, because this is probably more destructive than the other two things I've talked about. Pugnacious bullies are in the open. They're out there. Debaters usually stand up and they're usually mouth people, so they really let it rip in an open. But this next person can often be working behind the scenes of a group, of your school, of your family, of your church, and they're very destructive because they have two tongues. And notice it also says that the, the, the deacons need to, be, to not be this two-tongued person, but I want you to look down at verse 11. Because it says, in the same way their wives, and there's a lot of debate over whether the phrase should be in the same way the wives of the deacons or possibly in the same way deaconesses. There's a lot of debate in the early church of whether or not there was the role of a deaconess. And what I want you to understand is that the issue in the, in the first century biblical period is titles are not that important. I know for sure that Phoebe was a servant in the church. I know for sure that Phoebe held a lot of influence in the church by her godly example and by the good deeds that she did. And I want all of you ladies to know that I realize that we just can't make this thing go without you. You need the women. I realize I can't make my marriage go without Mary. I realize that my home, if I don't use Mary's gifts, it's stupid. I'm dumb. She's a very gifted ally. You know, you're just cutting off half your success if you, if you don't let your wife have responsibility and let her fly. The whole point of biblical leadership is not to hold people down. It's to create situations where they can fly. So I want all of you ladies to know that the first century church did not hold ladies down. It wasn't stifling their gifts. It was teaching them to work in proper roles, but it was setting them free to be all that God wanted them to be. 
And so it's very possible there were women that were, were dedicated to God's people and serving their needs and, and helping to minister to all kinds of things, from widows to handling uh, gifts to the poor, arms, all kinds of things, ministering to, to women that were going to be baptized and train them, all different kinds of responsibilities that women were involved in in the first century church. But Paul warns, he says this, they must be women who are worthy of respect. And it says something else, not malicious talkers. It's related to what it talked about with the deacons. They need to be sincere, not double-tongued. But here it says they must not be devil-tongued. They must not be malicious talkers, slanderers. When I talk to you about something very important, about the double-tongued and about slanders, double-tongued means this. It means there's two ways I can illustrate it. Number one, it's when you think one thing in your mind and you say something else. For example, in a marriage relationship, like Mary does not, Mary is never double-tongued. If you know Mary at all, Mary is not double-tongued. What you get, you might not like it, and it might be pugnacious. Mary can be strong, but she's never double-tongued. What she tells you is what you get. But with me, with me, what I want to do is I know what I'm thinking, but I don't want to make you unhappy. Because my personality, I want you to get along. I want you to like me. I want to do what you want me to do. In other words, if you ask me to do something, if I can't do it, I want to tell you, oh yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I have a really hard time saying no. So what's easy for me to do is to know in my mind what I think. And to know in my mind what I'm going to do, what I really need to do, but I don't want, you to, tell, I don't want to tell you. Because it's going to be a negative thing. I just don't like to confront the negative. Now, that is one form of having a double tongue. In other words, you think something in your mind, but you tell people with your mouth something different. And the Paul says that's going to get you in trouble. Do not do that as a leader. You cannot do that as a leader. Now, the second way that this word is used in the Greek language is you can be someone who tells two different things to different people. For example... I know some pastors. I know a very powerful pastor that's had tremendous influence. But what he would do with his staff is one staff member would come in and and they would say, well, this is what's going on and and this is what we need to do. And this pastor would say, oh, that's great. No, you're doing such a great job. And boy, the Lord's blessing. I'm just so thankful for you. And it's when I agree, what you're saying is exactly what we need to do. Go and do it. The next person on his staff would come in and say just the opposite of what the previous staff member said. And the pastor would go through the same routine again, same exact thing. Oh, that's great. We're serving the Lord together. What you say is exactly what I agree with. And man, it's really fun. And I I bless you, my son, go out there and do it. I bless you, my daughter, go out there and do it. But it's not going to work because he just told two people to do the opposite things. And he both told them that he agreed with them when you couldn't agree with them because it's opposite sides of the issue. And that's someone that has a double tongue. Do you know what happens? That guy reams through youth pastors, reams through associate pastors, because you cannot work like that in your business. If you don't speak the truth with your tongue, remember the old English, the Indian expression, he speaks with a forked tongue. The same idea. You tell one person one thing, another person another. Don't do that. The final thing he talked about with you ladies, and it's also we men can do it, But Paul has insight because it's very easy for women to get into this. And that is to do two things. The word that he used about malicious talking covers the bases in two big areas. And we use the English word gossip 
And we use the English word slander. I want to talk to you about those two words because they're absolutely destructive in church families. Gossip is when you tell someone the truth that doesn't need to hear it. In other words, when you find out about a situation and yet you tell somebody else about it and there's no need for that other person to hear about it or to know about it. You all have experience. Have you ever been on the telephone and you go to say something and the Spirit of God in your heart says, you know, they don't need to know that. Anybody ever had that happen? What do you do? What do you do at that point? It's very important, men and women, it's absolutely essential to put a break on your tongue and the Holy Spirit will prompt you. I can feel it in my heart. Even when I talk to you now, he'll say, Dave, they don't need to know that. Stop it. And there's a part of me that says, oh, yeah, but it's so juicy. It's so good. It would be, oh, Lord, it'll be a good prayer request. They really need to pray about it. The Spirit of God inside of me says, baloney. Because he says it a lot stronger than that. He says, you listen to me. Don't spread stuff that can hurt people beyond the spheres of influence that need to know about it. And it's from the pit of hell when we delight in doing that. It's wrong. Very wrong. Now, that's what gossip is. Gossip is telling the truth about someone to the wrong people. Gossip is telling the truth about someone to the wrong people. Slander is worse. Slander is when you tell a lie about someone to someone else. Slander is when something really isn't true at all, and yet you state that something is true, or you lie. You make up a whole story about something. Now, brothers and sisters, that malicious talking will destroy a family. It will destroy a community. It will destroy a church more than anything else. And Paul says that a person in a leadership position must never, never, never be a pugnacious bully. They must never be a contentious debater. They must never be a two-tongued person. The final one, it says that they must not be a stubborn, self-willed bigot. If you want to picture this guy, it's Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker in the old uh, series just epitomized. Uh, he, you know, the great actor Carol just uh, brilliantly portrayed this bigot. Titus chapter 1, verse 7. We read these words. It says they must not be, and the, and the NIV translates it here, overbearing. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 21, there's one instance in the Old Testament where, where this word is used. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word that's used here in Titus of an overbearing person, and it refers him to a particular fool in the book of Proverbs that we need to never put in leadership positions. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse 24. The proud and arrogant man, mocker is his name. He behaves with overweening pride. That word proud and arrogant, mocker is his name. Pride is the thing that produces the stubborn bigot that is going to get his way. He only looks at things from one dimension. There's no room for talking. There's no place for healing. There's no place to try to get restoration. There is just... A stubborn, arrogant, it's going to be my way or else. Now, those are the qualities that destroy church families. Those are the qualities in our home life. They'll destroy your family. The Lord is saying that we, as God's children, need to not be pugnacious bullies. We need to not be contentious debaters. We need to not be double-tongued people that will gossip and that will slander. And finally, 
we must not be the stubborn, self-willed bigot. Now, it's all nice to talk about that. But what is the positive side of this? What does the Lord want to create in us to really help us to overcome those kind of attitudes which all of us have in our heart from one time or another? Turn to 1 Timothy 3, verse 3 again, and we'll go back to where we started this morning because the Apostle Paul mentions the great antidote to all those qualities. He says they should not be, a leader should not be violent, but he should be, see in verse 3, he should be gentle. He should be gentle. Gentleness is the quality that is the antithesis of all that I've been talking about. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, did Jesus come in, you Caiaphas, you are a hypocrite, you are a bad person. He comes in riding his white horse, has a spear, and he's going to lance Caiaphas. He's going to throw Pilate off, the stupid, conniving Roman leader Pilate. Get him out of here and I'm going to take over Jerusalem. When Jesus came in at the triumphal entry, how did he come? And right now, we are in the age of grace where we are to exercise the example of our Savior. Our Savior came this time. This time he came gentle and riding on this donkey. The Lord wants all of his people to follow him in that gentleness. Isaiah predicts that he was so gentle that he wouldn't even break a little plant. He wouldn't even step on a little plant that was growing up. And contrary to what you think, some of you say, well, man, power is the only thing that works. Sure, it'll work over the short haul. But in the long run, for eternity, you're going to be left not out in the cold, but in the heat. So don't believe power is the ultimate thing. Love is the ultimate thing. Now, God is powerful, and one day he will set things right. But don't ever underestimate his strength. But his bottom line is love. God, God's ultimate over, over, you know, overwhelming characteristic is his gentle love. You say, Dave, what does that have to do with my bullying spirit? Turn to Titus chapter 3, because Titus chapter 3 has a great passage that exposes to us how we can have healing from this kind of stubborn, self-willed belligerence. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Remind the people, and Paul would say, Remind the believers that are hearing the word of God today, to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good. I think I find it very interesting because right now in our country, belligerent, pugnacious, bullying spirits are being unleashed across the land concerning government. And as believers, we can easily get caught up in that. We're in a revolutionary period again. You see, a lot of us can think, you know, everything was just, everything's well established, but we're very much, there's spirits of real powerful, it's going to be my way. Things have gotten too bad. And I even hear believers. I hear believers talking about that. And man, you know, we're going we're to exercise our power. Man, we're going to get our rights. Man, this is wrong. Now, it's very important for us to stand for what is wrong. But you need to think about it. How did the Savior stand about what it, against what was wrong? And we just can't take the weapons of the world and use them as believers. Because you're going to be hurt if you do it. The Apostle Paul says that we as God's children, the Apostle Paul was running to the believers in the midst of Neronian persecution. There was a horrible ruler on the throne of Rome. He was, he was bisexual and homosexual and a million other kinds of sexes. He was, in, he, was, he was violent. He would burn people on crosses for kicks. He'd just pour oil over them and light matches. Yet the Apostle Paul still said throughout the Roman Empire, Believers need to be those who remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. They need to be obedient and ready to do whatever is good. 
We should be known in our communities. And I praise God for many of you that are. I thank you, the Lord, for the testimony that many of you have developed over the years. You need to be those that are respectful and obedient and you're totally devoted to what is good. As a believer, don't go into meetings. Don't go into school board meetings or political meetings with a chip on your shoulder. Be strong, but be gentle. There's tremendous strength in gentleness. Be willing to listen to the other side. You're going to find out, you know what? You're going to find out many times you don't even have an enemy. That the person that you're, that you're appealing to agrees with you. I've had that happen many times. It's so important to do that. He said we should be obedient people that are ready to do whatever is good. We need to be very careful not to slander someone. Don't read everything you read in a magazine. I write articles for magazines, and not everything I write is the truth. So I know that everything you're reading in the magazine isn't right. I try to make it the truth, but we're all human beings. So don't read everything. Don't believe everything you read. And be very careful not to slander. If you don't know for sure that it's the truth, we must not repeat it. We must be a people of truth. We must be a people who get at the real facts. And we need to be a people that we move, we move strong, but we move in gentleness and consideration of others. That's how the early church transformed their society. And that's how we can do it too. It says we need to center no one and we need to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility to all men. The very first thing you need to do to overcome a bullying spirit a contentious, angry spirit, a double tongue, is to be humble. The Lord wants us, that, number one, we need to be honest about pride and ask the Lord for humility. What I find is a part of me that is competitive and I want to win. The Lord is saying that we need to not have the attitude, I'm going to win in our dealing with other people. We need to have a humble spirit. The Lord is the one that needs to win. The Lord is the one who's the ultimate one. Then the Apostle Paul says this in the next verse, at one time, we need to, second of all, we need to be humble, but second of all, we need to remember what it's like to be an unbeliever. A lot of believers have forgotten what it's like to be an unbeliever. And they're expecting unbelievers to act just like believers. That's wrong. You need to remember what it's like not to have the Messiah in your heart. Look what it says. At one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We disobeyed the laws of God. We were deceived under the influence of the evil one. What did this cause us to do? We were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. The unbelieving world lives controlled by their passion. They just can't help it. That's the way they, they, they just live every day and slave to what they feel, to what they believe will make them happy, what drives them towards happiness. And the Apostle Paul says, remember what it was like to be controlled by your passions. In other words, not having the break of the Holy Spirit that I talked about earlier today that would keep you from gossiping or slandering. The Holy Spirit isn't in the life of an unbeliever. So understand them. Don't expect them to act like you. It says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. If you're an unbeliever, if some one of your friends builds a house bigger than you, you envy that. And you're going to go out there and build a bigger house. You ever feel that feeling? You know, somebody's building a house and you, know, you, 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 you see it and man, you feel, man, it's going to be bigger than my house. So, man, I need to work harder so I can build a bigger one. That's the way the unbelieving world, push and pull. Envy, jealousy, then you hate people. The Lord is saying, remember what it's like to be an unbeliever. We need to be the exact contrast of that. The exact opposite of that. It says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But here's the third thing. You need to remember what it's like. Number one, we need to, re we need to be honest. We need to be humble. Second of all, we need to remember what it's like 
to be an unbeliever. Thirdly, we need to respond to Jesus' unconditional love for us. You know what's wrong with a bully? I see this when I go in the prison all the time. You know what creates pugnacious bullies? No one ever really reached them with love. Nobody ever really spoke to their heart with love, that they heard it. Maybe somebody tried, but they never heard it. Their heart became like a callous sore that just has a big scar over it. And they just can't hear love. And that's what makes them fight everybody, because everybody's always the enemy. The cure for that is to let the ultimate God of the universe, let the ultimate God of the universe do what it says in verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things that we had done. Do you got that? You see, you need to open yourself. I need to open myself up to God's love. Every one of us had the idea that God rewards good people and punishes bad people. That good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And therefore, the good people that go to church every Sunday and read their Bible and do all the good things, they can be real prideful, put their thumbs between, you know, on their lapels, and they can be real prideful. Man, I'm really something. Paul says, that's not someone that's understood God's grace. He says, the kindness and love of Christ appeared to us, and it has nothing to do with our works. What, what creates a gentle person what produces a disciplined, wise, gentle person is someone that opens themselves up to the love that was bestowed to us on the cross. If you're a pugnacious bully, you know what you need to do? You need to look at the cross of Calvary. You need to read the accounts of what Jesus did for you. And you need to ask yourself, why did my Savior do this? And you need to let the love of Jesus... You need to read those accounts until you begin to weep. You need to read those accounts until the Lord makes you humble yourself to hear the love. You have a Savior that when you were cussing at Him, when you were rejecting at Him, He still hung there for you and for me. And nobody can be a pugnacious bully. Nobody can be a bigot when they stand at the foot of the cross and really understand and look at that cross and realize what's happening there. You need to remember, you need to remember what the Lord Jesus did for you on that cross. Then in verse 7, we read this. It says, we'll read verse 5. He saved us not because of what we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The idea of washing is that your sins, the moment that you believed in him, your sins were washed away. The renewal is like the resurrection life of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you. That's what it means to be born from above that a new life is created inside of you, which he poured out on us. It's almost like Paul just can't use enough lavish terminology to describe God's love to us. It says God poured all this on us generously through Jesus the Savior, the Christ the Messiah, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. You know why the bully is, 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 is so passionate and why they think everything's out of control, that they have to lash out and strike? Because they don't have a hope for the future. That's what I talked about earlier. If you're a born-again believer, you can know for sure that because of the gift of God's grace in your life, and in the end, things will be okay. In the end, you have the hope of eternal life. A believer is never at the final ultimate point where everything's going to be disastrous. Never. So a believer never, never has to act out of total desperation because he always knows that in the end, there's eternal life. And that can produce a peace and a gentleness. It can produce a strength when decisions have to be made. But it also produces an ease 
and the ability to listen to others and to be open to others. It says that we have the hope of eternal life. Then it says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. The final two things are trust God's ability to deliver what he has promised and devote yourself to doing what is good. I would challenge you to take Titus chapter 3 and meditate on that passage. The final thing, those final two things are so important. The reason that a person's a bully is because they don't trust anybody. You see, in order for me to work with you, in order for me to let your abilities develop, I have to trust you. I have to believe that you're looking to God and that you, that you believe that, that, you're gonna, that the Lord will work in your life. And you have to believe the same thing for me. You have to believe that we're not against one another. You ever notice that some people, it, they're always the enemy. It's always they versus us. It's never us together. It's never all of us working together. And that's a person that doesn't trust. That's a person that doesn't rest. Doesn't rest on the Lord. And that's really the seed. That's at the bottom line of this contentious spirit where I've got to win and I can't be vulnerable. I just can't let down my, my guard you know, to let people really talk to me. And someone that ultimately trusts in the Lord realizing that God's in control, I don't control him. Someone that's like that can become someone that's free and is able to be gentle and be peaceable. And we can follow our Savior in that. You know, there's some people that are not in church. You know why? Because they were teaching a Sunday school class or they were working in Awana or they were working in the soccer camp and another believer slandered them or said something against them. They got their feelings hurt. Maybe you can think of some of those people. You know, maybe what the Lord wants you to do during these next few days is to call them and give love to them and just do something kind to them. You know, that's the way you overcome. You ever face someone that's just filled with bitterness? And how do you feel when someone's bitter, when someone's latching out at you, what do you want to do? Well, if you're like me, you want to hit them. That's what I want to do. I want to hit them or I want to get away from them. I'm angry about it. What I want to share with you today, you know what gentleness means? Gentleness means that you're so full of God's love, you're so full of your acceptance in Christ, that you can give kindness, you can give love to someone that's hating you. You see, that's the essence. You've all heard this crazy statement where Jesus said, man, I didn't tell you. Every unbeliever loves their friends. Every unbeliever does good things for their friends. Jesus made this incredibly crazy statement. You know what he said? He said, I want my followers to love their enemies. I want my followers to do good with those that persecute them. I want my followers to to give kindness for people that are giving hate back to them. You know what? You're going to think it's crazy. But if you'll do it, You'll start to enter into heavenly life. And you'll find out that it's the most powerful, it's the most powerful, crazy, fun thing to do. Because you're not trapped anymore in this terrible competition of hate and getting my way. You're able just to open yourself up and you become an open person that's free to love, even if people don't love you back. If we get that kind of love going, it's going to be like a tremendous healing salve that moves over this whole community. It can move over the whole city, over the whole nation, over the whole world. The Lord says that he is love, and he wants us to mirror this gracious, gentle kindness and mercy that the Lord Jesus has shown to us. He wants us to give that to other people. Now, where does the rubber meet the road? In your business meetings tomorrow at work. Are you going to be a pugnacious bully? Are you going to be a quick debater? Are you going to be a double-tongued slanderer or gossiper? 
Are you going to be stubborn and strong-willed? Are you going to try to motivate people and move them by not just being namby-pamby? Not talking about that at all. Jesus was not namby-pamby. Moses was not namby-pamby, but they were gentle. And there was strength in their gentleness. Let's pray. Father, I'd ask you, Lord, as we've been exposed to some things that I know really convict my heart, arrogance and self-will is so much a part of my natural being without the ministry of your Holy Spirit and without the response of my new man in Christ. And I know that there's husbands and wives that go through the same kind of dialogues that Mary and I go through. Lord, all of us from time to time can act the role of a pugnacious bully. We can act the role of the, the cunning, skillful debater. We can act the role of the double-tongued, slicked, fork-tongued slanderer. We can act the role of the Archie Bunker. And Lord, I would pray that you would help us to really look at Titus 3. I pray that we'll remember, Lord, the good thing that you've done in our life. And I'd ask you, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that more and more that we would drink deeply of your kindness and of your love. I want to pray, Lord, for anyone that might be hearing this teaching that's never initially responded to that love. Maybe they've never really had it clearly explained to them that salvation is not being religious and trying to do good works, but instead, salvation is meeting the person, Jesus Christ. It's understanding the love that he bestowed upon them when he died for them, when he died in their place to forgive them for their sins, and when he rose again to give them new life. Lord, I would pray that you would help them to be moved to realize that Jesus would like to come and live, take up residence in their life. And his invitation to come into their life is open today. All they need to do is to just humble themselves and open the door of their life and let Jesus come in. I'd ask you, Lord, that you would help anyone that has a question about that to feel free to talk to us about it. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit might move someone even as we close in prayer to make that split-second transition from dependence upon self to opening their heart to the Savior. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is one. 888-668-7884